Welcome to the Lone Soldier Podcast. My name is Corey Feldman. I spent three years as a combat soldier in the IDF, and I started this podcast to interview other lone soldiers and learn about why they enlisted, what they learned during their service, and how those experiences shaped them. If you enjoy the content on this podcast and would like to learn more about what it was like to be a lone soldier in the IDF, you can pick up a copy of my book, A Line in the Sand. It's available at Barnes & Noble or on Amazon, and you can learn more about this podcast at thelonesoldierpodcast.com. Welcome to episode one of season two of the Lone Soldier Podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Bernardo. With over 16 years of operational experience, during which he carried out hundreds of operational missions, Bernardo is a subject matter expert in the field of counterterrorism and security best practices. His expertise covers high-risk police tactics, special operations, dignitary protection, and close quarters battle. Bernardo recently retired from the active duty in a special operations unit of the Border Patrol in the IDF, focusing on direct action and low visibility operations. He has served as a federal air marshal, personal bodyguard to the chief of staff, combat instructor, and counter-assault team member to the Israeli Security Agency. For more than 10 years, Bernardo has also been mentoring youth in preparation for military service as the director and founder of Tzavet Lochamim, or Team of Warriors in English. In 2021, Bernardo joined the tactical fitness team an Austin, Texas-based company as Director of Operations. He also leads the Law Enforcement and Close Protection Training and Consulting Department. Bernardo, thank you for joining. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for the introduction as well. On a personal note, just to kick it off, when I first moved to Israel and all my income was going to a kibbutz four hours north of Tel Aviv, I was very much craving interaction with people my own age I was in the army with people four years younger. I was going back to my kibbutz with people four years younger than me. And when you're 23, that definitely makes a big difference. And I couldn't afford to move to Tel Aviv. So Bernardo and his two roommates, Rachel and Daniel, were gracious enough to invite me to move into their living room free of charge until I could afford to pay rent. And that was a really formative chapter of my time living in Israel. So I am extremely grateful to you and Rachel and Daniel for that. Bernardo and I actually met through Tzavet Lochamim, which I just kind of briefly discussed and we'll get into a little bit later. But first, I want people to learn a bit more about you. Where did you grow up and what was your connection to Israel before you moved there? I was born and I grew up in Mexico City. My father, he's um, Mexican from Eastern Europe, Jewish descent, and my mother is Mexican, also many generations, but uh, her family come from Spain. Her last name is Torres, which is the name of the translator of Christopher Columbus, who happened to be a Jew. Can we say Christopher Columbus in your podcast, or is that canceled? <laughs> All right, anyhow. I'll speak to the woke police and make sure that you get a pass for this one. <laughs> yeah. So the translator, whose last name was Torres, who was coming to uh, the new um, found land with um, uh, on that trip with Christopher Columbus, right? And, and um, uh, funny enough, uh, and this is an irony, is that um, my mother grew up actually uh, a Christian and converted to Judaism. And my father grew up in a family of a, uh, um, you know many generations of a, a Jewish culture, but 
when I looked uh, my roots on Yad Vashem, when, uh, you know, a long time ago, I was able to find my mother's last name as uh, Jews from Spain and also from Greece, uh, from Thessaloniki, Greece. And I was never able to find my last, my, my father's name anywhere. So it's an irony, but, you know, mm. it is what it is. And I, I grew up uh, in Mexico City, like I mentioned, um, with my mother and my grandparents. And my connection to Israel started um, at a young age with the youth organizations, uh, such as um, Hashomer Atzair and uh, Abonim Drol. And so I, this is kind of like a Boy Scout type of stuff, uh, but it's more of um, a social team leadership um, um, community for uh, youth. And so that was my main connection to Israel. That's where I learned about um, the land of Israel, about uh, the Israeli army. Back in the day, those these organizations, um, they, they, they were presenting Israel in a very positive way, uh, the history, the culture. And so that was really my biggest connection to Israel because I, I didn't study in a Jewish school. I went to a French school, actually. Had you been to Israel before you moved there? No, I'd never been to Israel. And the way that this happened was um, I was finishing high school and um, my mother told me, I mean, we, we'd been uh, through like some, a bit of a, a couple of hard years because I, I was, I was, um, I was an asshole of a kid. Okay. I was really a troublemaker. So, um, you know, we were having some difficulties in our uh, parental son relationship and we were trying to kind of like reconnect. And I remember she, she mentioned to me, hey, there's a trip to Israel that you can sign up for and it's free. And I was like, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is, oh, this, this, like, this is some, some boomer stuff that someone like sent her on Facebook and it's a scam. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out yeah. ever like, ever the skeptic bernardo ever the skeptic like, i mean you know they 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 her generation they're they're subject to all sorts of scams and and lies on 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 social media right so i thought it was that but then um uh you know fortunately and who would have thought it was a life changing event it turned out to be true it was uh, she was referring to birthright to taglit so that's how um you know that the, the idea of of, of uh, flying to Israel came about. And then, additionally, we went to to speak to the shaliach of the Jewish community in Mexico City, and you know I'm a an 18 year old kid, uh, well teenager, and this shaliach is telling me, hey, you're going to do taglit, and then you should stay in a kibbutz and do an ulpan, and you know that's that means you're going to be working and learning Hebrew. And so I'm sitting down in front of this guy. He's telling me I'm going to be studying and, and working. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, there's no way I'm going to be working and studying. The teenagers are the, the majority, you know, we're not, uh, uh, you know, very hard workers, particularly. And, you know, you're especially nowadays, uh, you, you're, you're worried about the wrong stuff. So I didn't understand the opportunity that was presented to me um, 
because, you know, I thought that was going to be like hard. I was like, why would I study and work at the same time? I, I guess, um, you know, the character kicks in because at the end of the day, I was like, all right, well, I'll take a chance and, you know, I'm sure it'll be interesting. And then I went and I did. And, and you know, the studying and working in a kibbutz, it's really adult vacation. At the end of the day, it was like the farthest from hard that it could be and the closest to fun that it's in, in actuality, right? So um, sometimes, I guess, you know, you got to jump on things. Yeah. And then I ended up uh, not coming back um, and going. Right, within eight months, I was in the IDF um, of, of landing in Israel. Um, and so my, my plans changed obviously. And then I ended up living in Israel for almost 17 years. Wow. Before we get into a conversation about your time in Israel, I want to ask you a question about your upbringing. Did you feel as a Jew in Mexico growing up like a minority? Like were you treated differently? What was the experience like of being Jewish in Mexico? That's a great question because, um, so I think, like I said, a lot of times the hate towards a group comes from different reasons. Um, in uh, in Mexico, people don't really have or didn't have at that time a lot of understanding of, hey, for instance, for, for, for Mexicans, the Jew and a Muslim are pretty much the same. It's the same thing, pretty much. I'm talking about Mexicans in the street, about the popular uh, class. And... Um, I never experienced someone who had a problem with that. Where did problems arise? Uh, oftentimes, um, they come from um, from perceived harm. So, for instance, um, a lot of Jews in Mexico are very rich and powerful, and they have uh, workers, and they have uh, personal servants and drivers and cooks. And I did hear several times of people who weren't treated right and attributed that treatment, that lack of uh, compassion, that lack of leadership, that lack of uh, empathy to the group. They're like, oh, this, this Jew, this that, this that. So then it becomes convenient to, to blame, right? And unfortunately, hey, we need to be honest and we need to be understanding that there's good and bad people everywhere. Totally. totally. Um, when I came to, to the U.S., actually, not... Um, here in Texas, but in one of my trips to the U.S., I remember distinctively, uh, I was in Miami with some friends. I met a a religious Jew, an observant Jew. He was wearing a, a kippah, and I was introduced to him like, hey, this is Bernardo from Israel. And this man told me, I'm going to call you Bernie because it sounds more Jewish. So, you know, another thing that we need to understand is that there is um there's bad attitudes there's hate there's um uh racism if you want to call it from from even from minorities so it's it's more of a character thing than it is a uh a demographic thing yep racism certainly comes in all shapes and sizes Okay, and back to Israel. Obviously, you didn't go to Israel with the motivation of joining the IDF. What changed for you while you were there that led you to decide you wanted to enlist? Yeah, so that's a great question. And and really, when I was there, I was having such a great time. I, I felt at home. I felt like I found a place. Um, 
and um, really it's it's a it's, it's two things something captured my attention which was i i met a soldier who came back to the kibbutz in his uniform and i had a friend who was um not to the kibbutz i guess i met him in tel aviv maybe but my friend introduced me to this guy he came back from the army and he started telling me you know i started asking him questions and then i i remember distinctively that he said to me uh that he had this like machine gun it's called the negev and he had night vision and laser and i was like damn that sounds cool i should do that um you know, machine guns, lasers, night vision, it sounds good, right, in, in every language. And then, uh, but I, I did realize that it's not a, a simple choice, right? Like, it's not a decision that you take lightly. So here's where I did my own, um, I would say, um, my own thinking and said to myself, okay, why would I sign up and go to the military? And I had to find something that was bigger than myself. Even from then, I, I understood I need a bigger reason to kind of like risk my life, right? So um, going back to these youth organizations, I, I, the Holocaust was always something that um, marked me. And I figured that uh, signing up for the IDF, it would uh, be a way for me to um, kind of like do my part, right, in trying to prevent something like that from happening again, you know, even symbolically. So that was my thought process. Um, and obviously, you know, what I mentioned about the machine gun, night vision, laser, it's cool. So you want to do cool things. You also want to be, you know, you want to be cool. You want to be badass. And that's part of everybody's individual motivations. Uh, but I was able to find something that's not just for me, right? So for, for others. You're what, like 19 years old when you draft? I was 19 years old. So what was it like to, to draft into the IDF? You know, eight months ago, you had no intentions of coming to this country. And now after doing some thinking, uh, connecting your people's history and the Holocaust to, to the, the existence of the IDF, you're a soldier. How was that transition? Well, I mean, one thing is the what went through my head. Another thing, also the transition. But fortunately, I, I've I've never really been too scared of um, you know taking on adventures, uh, and I really had the worst expectations. So I, in my mind, the military was going to be kind of like being in prison in a way. Like I thought I'd have to find like. Uh, a group of people for protection. I thought that there would be like, um, you know, fights like in the, in the base every day and it would be like very, very difficult. Um, and then that's really what I had in mind. Okay. He's a 19 year old. That's what he, I was thinking. And, you know, I, I've had before that funny enough is that I, I did one day of military service in Mexico too. I mean, more than one day is probably like two or three days. But the feeling that you get there is very, very different, right? And so I didn't really know what to expect. Anyhow, uh, like I said, I was, I was thinking this is going to be really, really hard. And I, on top of it, I didn't speak the language. Uh, getting in was obviously a process by itself. 
because the bureaucracy of the IDF is impossible. And then once I got into the IDF, I remember my first week, I was in this base, Michve Alon, and the first night, it was the winter, right? November, um, well, I mean, in the, in the vacuum, like I get on a bus uh, that's taking us to Michve Alon, and the commander said one thing, I remember that lesson right there, and it was probably, it really is one of the biggest lessons up to today. He said, hey, doesn't matter what, color your beret is going to be, your pins, you're gone, anything. The only thing that matters is the people you're going to be with. And I was like, okay, that sounds nice. Uh, it turned out he was right, obviously, about a lot of things. Um, it, it, and, you know, I was very fortunate to hear a lot of lessons throughout my, my service. That was probably the, the first one. So, like I was saying, I show up to Michbelon, and the first night they 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 tell us, "Hey, you got you guys got half an hour, an hour to 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 shower and go to bed." So we go to shower, and there's like a huge line. We're all like naked in a line, uh, and the water is cold. And this winter, so the the for some reason that specific day the heater didn't work, but I didn't know that that was just like a one thing one day thing like i thought this was gonna be like this every day i'm like shit like i'm just gonna wait in line 20 minutes naked and take a cold shower in the winter every day now and i was like fuck this is gonna be really miserable um and then you know it turned out it wasn't exactly the case of course there were very miserable things that i did but um it certainly wasn't what i had in mind and the process um Look, I was very, very motivated, so uh, I did very well on, on uh, basic training. I think I was the top of my class on basic training. I got a, um, like a prize for it and stuff. And um, the transition from being a civilian to being a soldier went pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, knowing you, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't pop out of the womb searching for threats. So I feel like that would have been a, an easy, <laughs> an easy transition for you. Where where did you start your service? Uh, so I started in in the and another funny thing is that in Mirvelon because I'm an only child, at the end of Mirvelon they told me, hey, you can't be combat soldier. So I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Like I just I came here to be a combat soldier, right? So this is, makes no sense. And then I had to get help from like this officer that was my commander there. And this officer, this lady, she was part of the, um, there was like a CBRM, you know, like a chemical warfare unit back in the day from uh, the engineer corps. Mm -hmm. So she was an officer from that. Uh, in Mirvelano, she was my officer. And she took me in the back room in the HQ or the drafting base, took me to this big uh, high-ranking officer. And he asked me, okay. Basically, they were friends, and he's like, all right, forget about everything. Just tell me where you want to go. And I told him two options. I want to be either in Nahal or in Magav. And and funny enough, throughout my career, I ended up serving in both. <laughs> so um, I first went to, to Nahal, uh, and I was... Um, and I show up to Nahal, and there's like a selection the next day. And I go to the selection and we start, you know, we're making us run and everything. And suddenly, like, I, I couldn't understand really Hebrew well. So I saw, or I thought I saw, that one of the kids that was running, 
lifted his hand, said something, and they let him drink, and then he came back and continued to work. But I, I couldn't. I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to ask how to drink, and I didn't understand the words. So I lifted my hand, and and one guy was like a taporesh. I was like Ken, and then he's like a tabatuach, and I was like Ken, and he's like okay. He takes me to the side, and and then it's like basically my selection was over. And I was like coming back uh, within the first uh, three every time on the runs. And suddenly I, I ended up quitting. I didn't even realize it. <laughs> I thought it was based on like points, right? Or like, I, I thought it was like, hey, I'm going to take a point deduction for drinking, but I'll be back. And it, it was, that was not the case. So I, I went that the next day. I was in the, one of the regular infantry units of Nahal. And um I remember I was worried because I was like, fuck, like I, I could have done it, you know, and I'm like, damn it. But then um, the commander I had, the sergeant I had uh, spoke to me. He's like, look, don't worry. You're in a good place. There's good people here. And he was really a, a good, good leader. Um, and they're hard to come by, you know, everywhere. Totally agree uh, with you. What, what do you what do you think makes a, a good leader in the military? Uh, well, everywhere, I think a good leader and, you know, his interest needs to be your best interest. He needs to try to um, lift you up rather than push you down, rather than look at you like a, like a tool or a, or a servant or a, or a slave or some sort of machine. It's, uh, it's kind of like he needs to add, act like a parent. To, to his subordinates and he needs to be an educator and he needs to, to aspire for um, character and values and I think that's the most important thing in a leader and obviously he needs, you know, a leader needs to find the balance between that and productivity and, but that's part of the art so um, Especially when you're talking about kids, because all this, you know, he was what, like 21 years old, probably, or 20. It's very, very hard to find someone who has those qualities, you know, out of high school. Very, right. very hard. Right. Uh, obviously, yeah, some people have them innate, but, um, you know, schools are not specific, are not uh, necessarily helping out with that. And um, so I was lucky that he was my sergeant at that time. Uh, along with other good officers that were there. And it turned out that he was the cousin of um, of uh, Shai, who was a volunteer in Sevet Lohamim also. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was a good coincidence. Did you learn anything about yourself during training that you didn't know before? Yeah, you learn everything about yourself because before you, you show off, you're, you're a kid that, uh, you know, depending on your demographics, you might or you might be comfortable or you might be super comfortable. And um, so, you know, like waking up early, uh, kids, like they're not particularly good at that, at doing anything that's hard, right? Because unfortunately, we're taught to kind of like make it easy on everybody and we're not used to challenging ourselves. So that's the first thing, right? So it's like, hell, you start discovering that... Um, you know, you can wake up at any hour. You maybe you don't need to sleep uh, so much and um, you don't need to eat that much. And also, I mean, it's kind of like, um, 
a social environment that is very demanding, especially if you can't really communicate yourself well. But I don't know. I felt like uh, it was like a, a challenge that I embraced and I wanted. And another thing you learn in the army, but I, I learned it more also later. But uh, I would say in the infantry, in the regular infantry, one of the lessons I learned uh, the most was that I had to be responsible for my own safety. That I couldn't leave others to be in charge of my well-being and safety. Uh, because you really couldn't. You know, when you're dealing with life or death or, or, or serious consequences, you can't trust anyone. I mean, none of these officers or sergeants or other soldiers were more qualified than me. So I learned that uh, I had to be responsible for, for stuff even when, uh, when you wouldn't expect it. So you got out in, what, 2006 the first time? I was volunteering, actually, through this thing called Mahal. And um, it was coming to the end of the service. I, 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 was, um, I requested to sign more time. But uh, that didn't come true. Like, that's how, how stupid sometimes the army is. Like, I, I asked you to do more time. And then, like, uh, a month before I'm supposed to get out there, like, oh, yeah, well, we never got an answer on this paper. And so, eventually, I just left in 2006. I got out. I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do? Uh, I thought I was going to go study in Jerusalem, actually, in the Hebrew University. I was going to do a, a year of a, what they call the Mechina, which I'm glad I didn't do. And then uh, um, I was working in the kibbutz that I was living on in Magan Michael. And then the Lebanon war broke out. And um, I was trying to get back into Miluim then. I was like, shit, because I didn't have a Miluim unit. In Machal, they don't assign you one. Right. And then I'm trying to go back uh, to a Miluim unit. And this war took a month, right? And obviously... I guess, uh, you know, I didn't know how to navigate the uh, bureaucracy in Israel the way I would do now. But every night, well, every day was like waking up, you know, to more pictures of, of people who, who passed away. And, and um, the two people that I knew passed away. And one of them was a, a friend of mine from France who, who drafted with me the first time. And he, he, he did stay longer and he died in the war. So I was like, I felt like I let him down. I felt like I wasn't there for, for him and my friends who, who went to battle. Um, and that was a feeling that I didn't uh, like. Uh, so I felt like unaccomplished. I felt like I didn't do what I was supposed to do, what I signed up to do. That led me to, to, to draft a second time. It took a year from getting out in 2006 to when I redrafted. But eventually I got back into the IDF and um, I, I, I went, um, I didn't have a lot of options at the date that they drafted me, but they're like, hey, you can go to Kfir or you can go back to Nahal and there's another selection. So I went back to Nahal and uh, all of my friends who'd been, uh, uh, were now sergeants and they were like, you know, part of the selection. And I, I went to the selection again. And this time, uh, you know, obviously I, I understood everything perfectly. I did very well. Even like more maturity makes a big difference. I think I was definitely within the first five of that selection out of a, like 400 people. So that was a good thing. And I started training in the Palsar, which was uh, much harder than I thought. Because I thought the selection would be the hardest thing, but it, it, was, it was not the hardest thing at all. 
And uh, this is in 2007, where the IDF still uh, was pretty tough, I would say, compared to how it is nowadays, even though every generation says that, but um, (laughs) there's been a lot of changes. And we were coming back from the Lebanon war, so all the commanders were very traumatized, they'd lost friends, they'd been in battle, so training was not, it was not a joke. Um, did you have to start at square one? Like, did you go back to like basic training or you joined advanced training? Uh, yeah, they, they let me join after advanced uh, infantry training. Um, so I had, you know, navigation training to do. Um, I had to do the counter terrorism course. I had to do, um, um, I don't remember the reconnaissance course and like a couple of other things. It was eight months of training that I had left. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was a lot of drops uh, from the training, uh, especially hand-to-hand combat and, you know, everything has to do with this uh, counter-terrorism things was very, very hard there at the time. Um, we had terrible instructors, terrible instructors, and because they had no knowledge, so they, they all they could do was really abuse us. <laughs> and, for instance, the Krav Maga was only abused. You know, just like kicking you in the ribs all the time, uh, uh, be, be on your fist for hours, you know, friendly in rest. Uh, it was just like um, these like fights that they made you do with others, but for hours and hours and hours. And sometimes they would even like uh, condition you to, to, to be in heat, right? That's why like, we did that the most. So it would be like, hey, put your hands behind your, your back. And the instructor would just like give you like three uh, full strength knees to the to the stomach, and you had to like absorb. And then like you're just like punching bags, and everyone's punching in the ribs. Uh, then our our like conclusion training was I think it was like eight or twelve hours actually, and there I couldn't move for two weeks. My knees were like all full of uh, fluid from like just getting kicked in the knees all the time, and we had like. A couple kids that were injured, um, dislocated shoulder. It was it was pretty bad. I, I actually um, experienced some of that abuse, but it, it actually wasn't in the military. Some people come home on weekends to uh, you know, <laughs> a, a cold beer. I came back to Bernardo hiding behind the door, uh, waiting to pounce on me and beat the shit out of me. And at the time, I was very angry at him. But I actually remember that there was one point in Krav Maga where... Basically, the drill was like you got you would fight with your teammates for position in the corner, and like the winner would be selected for the drill. And there was this kid that I didn't really like that much who ran to the corner. So I was like, "Oh, great! I'm going to beat this guy up." And we hadn't learned a lot of the things that you were using on me yet, but obviously you taught me after I stopped yelling at you. And so I was like kneeing this guy, and and he didn't know he didn't expect it, and he didn't know how to defend against it. And I remember he was yelling to the Krav Maga instructor, we didn't learn how to knee yet. <laughs> and the Krav Maga basically just ignored him. And he was like, go to Kavod, Corey. <laughs> ah, that was great. That was great. Uh, that is fantastic. I've never heard that. I, I'm happy you see that at the end of the day, it helped you. Exactly. Exactly. So if, if I haven't thanked you before, I'm, I'm thanking you now. <laughs> there's, one, there's one that they did to us that I haven't done with you. Where it's like you walk into a, a dark room and the instructors are just beating you up with sticks. <laughs> uh, that one is is not is a little bit less nice. We'll try it out next time. 
<laughs> but anyhow, to 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 move on with this, it's um, yeah, training was very hard, and then uh, operations were interesting. Uh, at the time, there were still IEDs in the West Bank. There were still a lot of armed people um, in uh, Jenin, Shechem, and uh, other places of the West Bank. And so we had the opportunity of carrying out uh, good missions there. Uh, also, there were some casualties. Um, you know, we had a commander that uh, got hit with an IED that was hidden in a trash uh, pile. And this dude, like, he was unrecognizable, you know, but he made it. Um, other people were shot, um, and I'm I'm happy. I, I we did a, uh, we did take out a couple of armed uh, terrorists in Palata um, in, in uh, next to Shem, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so we had interesting stuff. That when I talk about the type of missions, like the um, there was one that we called an urban ambush. So we would like sneak into a town in the middle of the night in in corners, different like corners of the town. And at this time of, of, of uh, you know, in the West Bank, this is 2008, uh, these groups of like armed uh, militants would just walk around at night. Sometimes they would shoot in the air. Sometimes, I don't know what the hell they're doing or why they would do it. But we'd just be waiting in corners and then you see an armed, uh, armed and you start counting back from seven and then boom. So <laughs> those missions were cool. And I don't think they do them so much nowadays. Maybe now, again, because it's getting hotter in the West Bank one more time. But um, it was uh, definitely interesting stuff. Definitely interesting stuff. Um, And then I got out of there in 2009 uh, with the idea that I was going to go study. You know, I'm like, oh, my mom wants me to get a degree. And so... um, I got out of there, and then there was that big, um, it was the mortgage crisis, right, that, that caused, like, um, a big depression in the world, economic. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to get a job at that time, and it took me a few months, but I was able to get into a job at the Ben-Gurion Airport, where, which is part of the security division of Israel's security agency that they, they're the ones who, who manage that specific uh, unit. And I was able to do like this very fancy course in Israel that's called the course Achid, um, um, which is like it's really the most advanced um, kind of like federal security course. And here in America, um, the training uh, that is um, kind of like parallel to that is from a, a school it's called Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, Fletzi. Um, and so it's a course that, it's called Achid because when it started, uh, it was one course and then the agents would do air marshal stuff, dignitary protection, uh, airport, embassy. And it kept the name unofficially, even though it's now called Lochem Razim. And then I did that to go and work in the airport, playing floats as a student. At the same time, as a student, I was doing that job. Um, I was also a counter uh, sniper a support for dignitary protection at that time. Um, through that job for the dignitary protection unit, and I did that until I finished my degree. And that's about the time when I started Sevet Lochamim as well. So, um, you know, that was a, a good point, a good time yeah. in, in history. 
a, a funny story about that was like, I guess it was probably when I first started the military and you were at the airport for a while, I was getting on a flight to go back to America and, uh, you know, did one of those handshake hugs. And instead of my hand hitting your back, it, it, it hit something very hard. And I kind of looked at you and you're like, don't hug me at the airport. I was like, okay, <laughs> got it. <laughs> so, all right. So, so tell me a little bit about Seven Lochamim. I had this scholarship and I was required to volunteer. And I was like, well, I want to do something that I believe in. And um, so I thought, hey, I, I want to help others kind of like, you know, achieve and succeed and maximize their potential in military service. And so the way I started Seven Lochamim is a very funny story. Is I, I opened a Facebook group, added all my friends on it. And wrote down Seven Lochamim. We're training on a Wednesday at five in, in this place. And I show up at five, nobody comes. All right, fine. I do another date, Wednesday at five, this place. I show up at five, nobody comes. And then I was like, all right, well, I sent a group message to everybody in the group because I added all my friends to this Facebook group. And uh, I sent them the message, hey, what a great session. You guys are so motivated. It was great to meet you guys. And uh, looking forward to the next. And then two days later, I get a phone call from Rafi, which you, who you know. Uh, he's telling me, hey, I heard about your group, and we, got, we, wanna, we want you to come train us in this kibbutz. So that's how Tzavid Lohamim started. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we started uh, showing up there twice a week, actually, at the time, and training this group. Um, and uh, it was it was a great great ride, Tzavid Lohamim. I did it for about uh, eleven years, I think, and I learned a ton about um, leadership, about uh, project managing, about working with others. Um, and you know, it was just a blessing, really. It was a blessing, and and the biggest blessing is that it's a community because um, kids who go through it they end up coming back. And, and, you know, volunteering themselves and, and it keeps feeding itself, the organization. And I'm not involved in it right now. And the guys who are involved with it, the, you know, Daniel, Jess, uh, Amir and others, they're doing a great, great job. And they're bringing, um, uh, you know, good members. They're doing a great job helping guys and then girls uh, prepare to, to join the IDF in combat units. And, and it's expanded not only to lone soldiers, but it's really a youth at risk. And we're trying to help out any minority that we can uh, and mix, you know, the immigrants with the Sabras and uh, really just, uh, you know, give that, that, uh, that character preparation, right, to understanding what you're signing up to do, uh, why you're doing it, and, you know, trying to get you to be a leader in your unit, right, to be the best that you can be. Yeah, I mean, I found Tzavid Lohamim from a Google search because when I came to Israel, you know, as a lone soldier with no family in Israel, I had no idea what I was in for. But fortunately, I knew that I had no idea what I was in for and that I would need some help to prepare. And so, you know, we but by that point, you had already started getting people to show up at the 5 a.m. sessions. And a bunch of us come on Friday mornings and spend three hours running up sand hills with stretchers. And honestly, the, the preparation was harder than the Gibushim themselves. So this organization was amazing. And, and to your point, like some of my closest friends from Israel still to this day 
are actually guys that I trained with in Seven Lochamim. So it really created a family of people. Uh, my sister ultimately got involved in it when she moved to Israel. Both of us trained people while we were still in the military. You know, Daniel, who was, you know, our roommate, I, I was so taken that he would come back on his like three free days a month and would wake up early to train the next generation of lone soldiers. Uh, it was really an incredible community that, that you built. It's really beautiful to see that type of dedication, you know, to to helping others. And, and it's so rare, like we take it for granted many times, but there aren't so many pure uh, actions like that, you know, and um, like you said, like what, what makes a person uh, use their free time that is very limited coming out of active duty to show up and try to like help others, right? Go on that path and, and do the best that they can do. So I was very, very blessed and fortunate to, to be a founder of that and be involved with it and meet uh, so many great people, including yourself and your family. Um, and so, um, yeah, that, that was a good thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's continued to bear fruits. Uh, one of the, uh, one of our mutual friends, Sean Ear, who I think I met through Tzavad Lohamim, we'll discuss this a little bit more later, but I'm the president of an organization called Legion that trains Jews to defend themselves. It's a nonprofit. And it was just the easiest decision in the world that when I needed someone to be effectively the sergeant for this class, that I would turn to Sean because of his experience in Tzavad Lohamim and the IDF uh, and my friendship with him. So it's just funny how this organization has continued to bear fruits even to this day. Yeah. So, and it's, it's funny that Sean, the first time he came to a Tzavad Lohamim event, we were doing like a mock selection and I'm like telling him, Hey, you got to go to this. You got to come. He's like, yeah, I really want to go. First time he shows up, he's there for five minutes. We're doing this drill where like, he's trying to hold this guy. And uh, this dude, I think it was Josh Shapiro. He throws a knee and hits uh, Sean um, right under the eye, cuts him open in his face and like bleeding like crazy. And five minutes later, he was on his way out to get stitches. That's it. He was supposed to be there for like two days. It was like a two-day event. Yeah, that was, that was good. Uh, okay, so transitioning from the discussion on Seven Lochamim, you left your active duty military service um, and eventually you left your job at the airport, but you continued within Israel's security apparatus. Yeah, I actually, from the airport, I went back to the IDF uh, to active duty again, um, but I was in the dignitary protection unit of the IDF. And so I was um, chosen to be a... Um, um, a close protection agent for the chief of staff, high-ranking generals, delegations. And I did that job for about two years. Um, and I was a soldier again. So that was the third time I, I got a uniform from the IDF. Didn't you manage to get some bars without going to officer school? Yeah, I was also an officer officially <laughs> without having to go to officer school. Uh, now, had I, you're supposed to go to officer school within three years in that unit, but I left before, so I didn't have to do it. More so than most of the folks that I've interviewed to, you know, on this podcast, your work today really relates to the work that you were doing during your military service. So, you know, what, what made you decide to stay all these years in the world of, of security? I, I, it took me a long time to realize that. Motivations also changed throughout the years. 
throughout the career. Because, for example, when I drafted into the IDF, I had a certain motivation, which we discussed earlier. When I went to the Dignity Protection Unit, my motivation really was to try to, to, um, to climb, to, to find new boundaries, to, to educate myself, to open up more uh, qualifications and knowledge, to become more professional, I would say. And then towards the end of my career, uh, when I was uh, in the border guard, my motivation changed to um, understanding that I've always had a facet of my character uh, that um, demands from me to be a protector. And so part of my personality and my character is I, I am a protector and um, that's what kept me going and, you know, along with other things, but that was uh, the part of myself that, that kept me, uh, you know, in that career and, and keeps me going, uh, doing uh, many of the things that I do. When you were active duty in the uh, Border Patrol, you also, I remember, went on some pretty interesting missions. Can you tell me a bit more about that, that role? Yeah, 100%. I mean, well, just beforehand, uh, after the, the Dignity Protection, I, I went actually to the security division of the security agency as an instructor uh, for all the embassy protection forces, Dignity Protection agents, air marshals. I was uh, found one of the first uh, members, I mean, one of the first 20 members of the counter-assault team of the Dignity Protection Unit. That's the, the parallel to the CAT team of the Secret Service here in the U.S., and uh, a part-time air marshal as well. And I really like that job. It's a very professional school. Uh, got to learn a lot about uh, tactics, tactical, uh, and um, being an instructor, which is in itself teaching is an art and a profession. Uh, but I had the need to go back to the field. I felt like I was young enough, still capable, and just like shooting at uh, paper targets and telling people how to punch all day, uh, was not enough. And um, also the security division, security itself is frustrating because you don't see the fruits of your job. You never know if a terrorist or an attacker saw you and decided not to attack your, your dignitary or not to uh, attack the airport or your embassy. You really don't know this stuff. And um, so you're left kind of frustrated because you can't see the fruits of your labor. Um, so I was like, hey, I want to go back to the field. And I was fortunate to be given the opportunity uh, to go to uh, the unit that's called Yamas. And this is Yechidat Mistarvim of the uh, border guard of uh, Mishmar Agbul. And it's still today, and it's been for um, um, about um, almost 30 years now, uh, one of the most active units in Israel. Um, and so uh, this unit specializes in uh, low visibility, uh, undercover uh, tactics uh, to capture either very violent criminals in high-risk areas or um, to carry out counterterrorism operations, um, uh, you know, throughout uh, 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 Jerusalem or the West Bank. And so that's the unit that I went to. What's the difference between Yamas and Duvdevan? So in... in, in um, in the wider concept of what the units do, there's uh, there's a there's a lot more similar similarities that, than there are differences. 
but the main difference is that Yamas is um is a law enforcement slash military unit, and Dubdevan is a military unit. Now Dubdevan nowadays has also tasks and skills and um you know uh, responsibilities that have to do with with the uh, uh, wartime with the uh, combat in in open field and integration with the larger uh, military units and divisions uh yamas is uh, operating uh, many times um, against crime um in high risk areas so really it's not about so much the it is obviously violent criminals all the time, but it's much more where they are hiding. So it's it's areas where the Israeli police cannot go in. If it's the West Bank, if it's areas of East Jerusalem that are very dangerous. And so this is uh, part of like the tasks of Yamas. The other tasks that are in common with both is counterterrorism. So it's responding to uh, requests from the security agency to detain a suspect of terrorism who's about to commit terrorism or who committed terrorism or has something to do around um, a terrorist threat. Um, and then the, the next big difference, I would say, is the personnel, because in Yamas you have more NCOs than in Dubdevan. Um, and for instance, in the Jerusalem Yamas, you have almost 80, 80%, 85% NCOs. Just people whose that's their career, that's their life, and they're professionals at it. Um, what else can I tell you about it? I was uh, a breacher there, so my job was to to break doors, which I loved it because even if the even if the mission was not successful or or was not interesting, I always got to break a door, and that's always fun. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, yeah, you do have to carry more weight, but you know it's um, it's a trade off. <laughs> uh, I was also a sergeant in my team. I got the chance to do a, a leadership course and um, to uh, kind of like, a, I don't know the word of it, but um, bringing new warriors to the team. And it was really, this was also a unit that for many years I, I had uh, kind of like, something was bringing me close to this unit. I've heard about all the, the stories, Eli Avram, the book, Avir Esrim Echad which is translated into Night 21. And then the other, the book of uh, Samuel Katz, uh, Israel's Ghost Warriors. And, uh, you know, all the, the the amazing stories about this unit, you know, the, the stuff that they did during the, the Second Antifada. Uh, and um, it was just um, something that really uh, caught my attention. And I had actually tried twice before to get into this unit somehow. Uh, but because of all the stuff I'd done, up to this point in my career and a connection between some of the people I worked with, with the commander of this unit at that time, I was a, a, able to offer them. So I was coming to this unit and I had a lot to offer. Um, and then, um, so that's how I went there. And yeah, I mean, the, the operations were certainly very, very interesting. It's also very different to be in a team where 80% of the, the, the people in this unit are, are NCOs, they're, they're professional soldiers. Mm. And so the, the entire um, life of the unit is very different because um, it's closer to what we would imagine uh, a special operations unit uh, it works. Um, and uh, I was very proud of that. 
Uh, there's a lot of things that I didn't like so much about the stuff we did or the way that it's handled, but that's just how it is everywhere, you know? The commander in that unit told me something that um, is 100% true. He, he's a guy, super experienced, right? And, and he tells us, listen, guys, there's no unit anywhere in the IDF, in the border guard, in the prison service. There's no unit where, the guy, where guys wake up with a boner every day uh, going to work. Like they're like happy to just uh, wake up and then do another boat. Sometimes you do things uh, that make you uh, satisfied, some units more than others, but every unit has their complaints and their issues. And, you know, it's something a lot of people don't realize. And then, funny enough, that night after he spoke to us, we went on a mission that was insanely crazy and, uh, you know, lots of shooting and like, a, um, you know, a fire. And it was definitely an adventure. And the next day, I woke up with a boner. I can tell you that 100%. <laughs> so, uh, it's just how it is, you know. There's ups and downs. There's good times and there's bad times. I mean, in Israel, from 2009 to about uh, two, three years ago, things were very quiet, except for with some like major operations that happened in Gaza. The West Bank was pretty much, um, you know, very, very quiet, and things go up and down. So... Uh, it's a career. It's not a, a stint, right? And then uh, uh, the whole thing, the totality of it is a school and a job, a profession that um, you go through through different perspectives and you, you learn and you um, create different mindsets around it. You, you know, it's, it's interesting. Probably some people would listen to your comments and say it's the glorification of violence. The, the fact is that democracies are kept safe by people who are passionate about uh, defending people and about the profession of being a soldier, without which armies don't exist, or they do, but they just have shitty soldiers in them. There's a guy named Jocko Willink. He was a captain in the U.S. Navy SEALs. He wrote the book Extreme Ownership, and he's got a podcast. And he says at one point, it's hard to explain to civilians that young men who sign up to go to war really want to go to war. And it's hard to explain to young men who sign up to go to war to be where what you wish for. What do you think about that sentiment? I think that is a great quote. It's absolutely a great quote. Uh, but I, I mean, glorification of violence. I think it's um, it's another term that is uh, that that is nonsensical to me. I feel like a lot of times um, society with so many subjects, we're steering away from being humans. Aggression and violence are a natural part of being a human being an animal on this planet. It's a natural part. It's natural. You want to be natural? You want to be organic? That's part of it. Uh, men, young men, um, it, it's part of, of, of what you, you have. You want to be able to, to stand in front of danger, and some, some more than others. Uh, and the biggest satisfaction, I was in another podcast with Byron Rogers, and he asked me, what's the biggest satisfaction of your career? And the, really, the biggest satisfaction was when I felt that I did what I signed up to do. When I captured someone who was going to kill a lot of people. When I went through something very dangerous and I survived. When I, you know, achieved something that is what I signed up to do. That is the biggest satisfaction. Not the pins, not the colors of the beret, not getting a, um, a prize or, you know, anything else. The biggest satisfaction or finishing training. The biggest satisfaction 
was when I got to do what I signed up to do. And um, 100%, um, you know, it's, uh, it, is, it is that. I, uh, let me tell you some of the operations we had. Uh, there was shooting, there was explosions, but the one thing that happened all the time was fist fighting and wrestling people. Like it was just all the time fighting inside of houses, uh, fighting people to arrest them because they were throwing uh, you know, Molotov cocktails at cars or things like that. And um, uh, one thing that, that is true that people need to keep into consideration is that it's all fun and games and, and you really want to do it as long as everybody comes home safe from your side. Mm. Uh, it's not fun when, when your friends get hurt or, or, or you know... Um, you know, give the ultimate uh, sacrifice. It's all fun and games when you when you come back home safe. Oh yeah, that's how it is, man. I, I when I was in Mexico, I grew up with a lot of violence around me, and I remember uh, hearing from, I think he was a bodyguard, uh, this guy, but um, he said, you know, um, life is what it is, and at the end of the day, when I have an adversary, I prefer having his family cry out about him than mine. And it's okay. I don't care if it's going to glorify violence or not. It's going to be you. Mm. That's just the mindset. And there isn't a midway um, a, when it comes to, um, you know, life or death. There isn't one. So, you know, obviously, I'm not talking about de-escalating stuff. 100% there's place for de-escalation. I don't, uh, as a matter of fact, I was just talking about this yesterday. Uh, there was, um, we had one operation. We, we, they sent us in like at nine in the morning into um, Colombia, which is a horrible place. And we had to arrest this guy uh, in his home. So we, we went in with like undercover car, got out. I got into this guy. I broke the door. We got into his home. We found the, the dude. We fought his brothers and, and uh, uncles, obviously. But we were able to, to handcuff him. And we're coming out, and the whole town was like on us. Um, and there was shooting, and there was, we had injured people who got hit with like big blocks of uh, concrete on the head. Uh, one of uh, our guys uh, was home for about nine months. Uh, he almost had brain damage from that. And we had uh, people with broken bones. Uh, we, we made our way out of that town with gunfire. And uh, there were some dudes who were trying to um, stop of mine and I remember that I I had the opportunity to shoot them center mass but I chose to to shoot next to them to kind of like scare them off. So it's not like I wanna kill people or I wanna do this or I want to do that. No. I I don't want to but I want to be capable of doing it if I have to. And I and, and then uh, what Jordan Peterson says having the ability to do something and controlling myself has more value to it than not having the capability of doing something and saying, I don't do it because I believe in it. Hmm. So if you don't have it, you can't really understand it and you can't really be moral about it. If you know, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Totally. Uh, what you just said brings up a good point, which is, you know, there's a lot in the media today. Uh, Gigi and Bell Hadid just posted some video about an IDF soldier throwing out a, a toy bike. Uh, there's a lot to do about, you know, the supposed 
evil of, of IDF soldiers. And, and you and I know as people that were in the IDF that actually there were lots of opportunities where basically any military's law would allow for us to have taken <clears throat> action and, and chose not to. Like I, I think about the rock that hit me in the helmet that knocked me out to my back. That's, that becomes an enemy combatant and I could have shot him, but he was a kid. So I didn't. Right. And, and maybe I was wrong not to, frankly, but like, what, what can you tell people that don't have the same experience about the restraint that you saw uh, from your colleagues and from yourself? Something very important to understand is that there's always going to be haters because it's part of the it's part of the fight. You know, you're never going to make everybody happy. But the IDF in in reality is one of the most moral armies in the world. Um, I don't know of these things that they post. I don't know why this guy. I never even see the video because I don't follow. Bella Hadid or Kanye West or any celebrities. I, I, I despise celebrities. I don't really care what they say. Um, but the point is that I never saw anything um, that I found to be unethical. Uh, I did hear of things that occurred just as they happen in any other army or profession in general, not even just like use of force. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the narrative. and. It's part of the fight. And I think the real issue with it is that Israel, the IDF, the Israeli government don't do enough to counter narratives. For instance, um, as a police officer, pretty much everything you do is filmed. Yet the Israeli police would let media organizations publish uh, videos from people's phones and they won't publish a, a video from the officer that shows a different story. They just don't do it or they don't have someone dedicated to doing it. Hmm. The same thing happens with the IDF. It, there's just no plan and no strategy to counter these narratives. It's very, all the asbara, all the, the, the efforts, okay, to fight um, criticism of Israel are done by private uh, entities and citizens. So... Uh, who's really at fault here? Who are we crying about? Bella Hadid? I don't care about her. I want to know what is this government doing to counter these these accusations, uh, and how are they 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 debating it? You know, it's a debate at the end of the day. So they're not fighting well online. They're not fighting well in the media, and that's the real the real issue here. That's the real concern. Is there is there a particular story that you think highlights the morality of the IDF from from one of the many operations you were involved in? Um, well, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, there's many, but one of the most dangerous missions that I was on, uh, we were sent to this place that just came back in the news recently. It's called the Shafat Refugee Camp, and um, uh, we were sent in a mission to capture some dude in the middle of the day again uh, in a place that's kind of like the Brazilian favelas. You can't even get there in a car. And so we used um, uh, undercover agents to contain the location of the suspect. And then these undercover agents were made during their, their you know, their, they're trying to make their way there. And they were being shot at and thrown Molotov cocktails in a, in a very narrow alley. So I was in the in the in the breaching team. We were waiting in a, in a vehicle, 
and were called to uh, uh, basically come to, to to assist them very, very fast. So we're like running down some stairs because th- obviously these towns, they're built on hills, you know, for some reason. And um, and then, you know, we're just hearing gunfire and we come to, I come to turn the corner to, towards gunfire, which at the moment I had a split second where I was saying to myself, hey, why would I turn this corner where there's gunfire like why am i doing this and i answered myself right away well this is what you signed up to do and if you don't do it then who else will do it uh yes to to try to save my friends of course to try to do the right thing but at the end of the day we had a very very uh, dangerous mission where one of our friends got hit in uh, like right on the, the arm uh, he, and he he was undercover so he wasn't even wearing a real protection, a, like a, a bulletproof uh, vest or anything like that. Uh, he was lucky to to even make it. People were injured, and the reason we did that mission was to 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 capture a Palestinian who had murdered another Palestinian. So, at the end of the day, uh, many of the missions I did were were trying to keep the order, trying to 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 to. Uh, you know, to do justice in 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 uh, uh, occasions where where Palestinians were were harmed, where there was something done to a Palestinian family, and they sent me to risk my life for them, and I did it, uh, and I didn't ask any questions. So, and so did all my friends. Uh, uh, another example is the um, the border guard is made up of so much diversity which i i hate the cliche of diversity but i i do want to show that it's so different like if, if all these critics would know that in my team where we had jews we had christians we had muslim arabs um uh, druze all working together um uh, that that would paint a very different picture to people right and I feel like it's just out of ignorance a lot of this stuff, but again, I I, I feel you, you can't ever make everybody happy. We need to be a little bit stoic about it because uh, there's always going to be someone who hates Jews, Blacks, Chinese, Mexicans. There's always going to be someone who hates someone else because, and and forget about the idea of race is really a human um, concept that was created by humans. I mean. I don't think I've I've lived in three countries and the US is the only country where you fill up a form online, a government form, and they have to ask you, what is your race? So uh, it's something that I think connects to tribalism, our natural tendency to be in tribes, to be in groups. I mean, it's it's uh, it's obvious that when you look at it from a perspective of, hey, there's people stabbing each other over football teams. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it might sound it, it, it sounds you know very stupid, but that's that's human nature. We're all the time trying to like find a team, right, mm. and and play by that team. And so, at least in the case of uh, uh, Bella Hadid, or I think their sisters, I, I I don't really know much. I've seen her account sometimes. I I don't know what she's done, where where she grew up, or anything like that, but. Um, from what I understand, her family are Palestinians, so she's she's trying to use her platform to play that team, you know, which is is a very natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're never going to be able to fight against these things 
uh, or eradicate it completely. Um, there's a lot of things that come from that tribalism, from playing uh, for your group, for your team. There's other things that come from ignorance. Uh, there's other things that also come from perceived um, harm done to you by that specific group. Uh, and so there's there's many, many reasons for which, um, you know, um, uh, uh, that we can see negative um, portrayal, negative opinions about Israel, about the IDF. There's also another concept, which is, you know, like I said, stoicism, like how much do we care really about this type of stuff if we know we can't do much about it in terms of like we can't eradicate it maybe we should focus on things that matter for instance what doesn't matter if if i see a show like the view you are familiar with this view with the, with this tv show no i'm not good for you so the the tv show the view is a apparently i, I mean I, I couldn't believe it but it's a popular um, you know, uh, kind of like day TV show with uh, some famous people, and and they have opinions that are not very sophisticated. Like they're actually very very stupid. The people who lead the show, um, and, but they have very controversial stuff. Uh, they bring up things that are harmful, uh, also against uh, Jews, also against Israel, also against other uh, in other subjects. You know, of current. Um, uh, world affairs and discussions but the point of this is who watches that show i mean it's very very hard to to convince people that they're wrong uh, there's someone famous who said it's easier to fool someone than to convince him right and uh, on another note is maybe we don't we shouldn't even care that people who watch the view or follow bella hadid think about the israeli army and this connects to um uh, my personal opinion, um, and this is something that I heard Bibi Netanyahu say, and it really connected to me, but I believe in peace through a position of strength. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that uh, deterrence is uh, also a natural position in the world and within humans in a social perspective. And I believe in peace through strength. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, when we spoke earlier about uh, kind of like, hey, young men or people who want to go to war or who want to like put themselves in harm's way to kind of like do something. Mm. Uh, well, it's also part of it. Uh, the other part is kind of like I was thinking, you know, I, I know you had a or you have uh, part of the things you do is uh, uh, alpinism or, or climbing. Right. Mm hmm. And, you know, I'm sure people asked you, why, why do you climb that mountain? And there's no, uh, let's say, dry, soulless answer that's going to satisfy that. You're, you're doing it um, because it's, it's exactly the same thing. You, you want to stand in front of a challenge, an adversary, and conquer it. Hmm. So it's a very natural, masculine or human thing to do in general, because there's females who also um, feel satisfied uh, accomplishing tasks like that. Certainly. Uh, One of the things you touched on was the portrayal of uh, Israel in the media and, and whether or not that matters. I teach a class called Fuel for Truth, where we educate people about how to successfully advocate for Israel. 
But I think it's broader than that. What we teach is emotional intelligence and how to have tough conversations. Yeah. And one of the things that has become apparent to me is that one of our problems as Jews, uh, many of whom are intellectuals, is that we try to intellectualize emotional problems. So Gigi and Bella Hadid will post a video that creates a visceral response in someone who watches it, who, who feels for the supposed victim of that video. And I say supposed because rarely do these victims, rarely do these videos portray the entire story. And so it's hard to know if this is a victim or not. Yeah. And we try to explain away, well, did you know that X thousand tons of aid came into uh, Gaza through Israel last month, right? It doesn't create yeah. the same impact in the person who's who's watching it. And and yeah. frankly, one of the stories that I told the participants last night was your story. I said, you know, here's a, here's a video you'll never see. Here's a guy who moved to Israel, who spent his life in the security apparatus, who charged towards gunfire, who had friends who were nearly critically injured in order to capture someone who murdered a Palestinian, right? And and it's almost, you'd almost take that for granted, right? Of course, because, mm -hmm. uh, but this is not an Israeli citizen, right? This is an area A where these are, yeah. are, are residents. They're not even Israeli citizens. And yet uh, Israel still sends its young men into battle in order to uphold the standards of uh, legality and justice in these areas because it's the right thing to do. And that's not a video that you'll ever see on someone's Instagram feed, but it, it certainly is uh, along the lines of the stories that I wish we told more of because that's that's the Israel that makes me proud to be an Israeli citizen and a reservist. And it's what makes me, um, it's what upsets me when I see the way that Israel is, is portrayed, that, that we don't advertise the stories like that. Yeah, I think you're touching on very, very important points here, and I, I agree with you completely in what you're trying to say. Um, the the first thing I would uh, connect to what you're saying or, or try to like um, add on it from another perspective is that I, I think people in general um, need to be aware of a propaganda and manipulation techniques because it's not something you can talk about. It's something that exists. And it's used actually in so many ways. It's used to sell you something. It's used to flip an informant. It's used to, um, you know, shape public opinion. And it's used to get you to vote for someone. And so um, propaganda manipulation is part of it. And, you know, for instance, uh, I remember seeing uh, yeah, during one of the operations um, this video of a kid where like there's absolutely no footage on on whatever supposedly happened to this to this little kid there's just footage of him you know looking really in a really sad way and brings tears to your eyes but at the end of the day where is the story and this is used and shared in in the channels where uh, you know people just get like a certain feeling like you said emotions and there's no there's no balance between emotions and and the intellect, um, and so it's very sad. But especially when it comes to kids, kids are are, are a big big play card, and um, you know people are going to go very very far for kids, and what they perceive is damage done to kids um, in any circumstance. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people who who hate Israel around the world because of. Uh, that perception, right? That Israel is like dedicated to harming kids. 
And of course, the best argument against this is a conversation with the average Israeli soldier. The media demonizes, but it's much easier to demonize when it's abstract, a faceless enemy. Another concept that's important to understand is the violence concept uh, from a liberal perspective. Okay, which here's where where that um, um, uh, you know Bella Hadid sometimes she 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 can resonate with a lot of liberal folks. And one of the issues on on the liberal side, not that there's only issues with the liberal side, but one of them is um, the perception of violence and justice. Okay, on their side. For instance, by by some sort of a um, liberal logic, I would say, not to generalize it, but but some some in some perspectives, um, there's a concept of, well, look at this. There's 300 Palestinians who died, and only one Israeli, so definitely they're under oppression. Or um, you know, all he was trying to do was uh, steal your car, and and you shot him, and he died. So that's that's not just. The concept of violence and, and survival is very skewed in their liberal mind because from their perspective, if, if someone's is trying to, um, let's say, rob me at gunpoint in my car and I end up shooting them and killing them, from their perspective, for this to be just, I need to shoot myself and die as well. So there's no uh, logic uh, or sound logic when it comes to the continuum of uh, of violence and of uh, self defense, and that many many times is used in propaganda against uh, the IDF. For gotcha. instance, I'm more of a conservative, and I can tell you that one of the more radical views on the conservative side uh, is with regards to gays and gay marriage, and you know, gays adopting kids and things like that. That is a radical view on the conservative side. So on the liberal side, there are also radical views, and one of them. Uh, portrays uh, or understands the the um the balance of violence and self-defense in a very skewed way that's what i meant to say right and you know there's there's so much to dive into there there is a question of when someone grows up without role models and and makes a mistake and i'm not talking about murders or, or rape how do we treat them as a country and mm-hmm. do we intend to rehabilitate them or to punish to make ourselves feel better and and that is per- perhaps there is some equivalence there in the question of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the marginalization of of non-citizen populations. But yeah. what what I would say is, you know, t- tell me, name a country for me where minorities don't have it worse than the majority. Like it, it's true everywhere. It's true in America. It's true in Israel. The fact is, Israeli Arabs who are full citizens of Israel have all the rights that Israelis have. There is no difference on paper. In terms of the rights that they have, they are Supreme Court justices, they are policemen, they're soldiers, they're scholars, they're professors. Um, but of course, they fight an uphill battle in society, just like every minority in every society. Uh, and so, you know, I, probably you experience the same thing in America, right? You have an accent. Israel is often held to a standard that no other country is held to. And that's part of what frustrates those who advocate for her is yeah, we know she's not perfect, but before you start condemning Israel, why is it that there's more resolutions condemning uh, Israel from the UN than than you than North Korea, Iran, and you know Russia combined? Like, how is how does that make any sense? Yeah, well, I don't think it makes sense. I, I don't think it's going to make sense. I I don't think it's going to be fair ever, um, because it's on purpose. You know, it's part of the manipulation. It's part of the. Um, the whole concept of oppression and oppressed 
um, is a money maker mm-hmm. and is a people mover. And there's no other way to see it. Like, look at America. America, unfortunately, understands things through that glass only. When they try to understand the, the conflict of Israel and Palestinians, they put it on a oppression versus oppressed mm-hmm. framework oh, and, and the racism framework. All right, let's wrap up the conversation about media. Going back to something we had, were alluding to last time, you've worked in the security forces for and with a number of different countries. What would you say it is about Israel that sets its military apart from others? Well, that's a great question that I, I actually pondered on this question for many years even. I'll tell you what I think. The first thing, and this is probably the most like big picture one, um, is that I oftentimes said to myself, hey, we should have a professional army in the IDF. This is something I thought, right? And there's many reasons for it. This, the, the number one reason is that, you know, the idea is full of kids, teenagers. And oftentimes they're stupid. They don't stay there long enough. They don't, they're not professional enough. And I was like, why, why are we an army of kids here where we need people to be an expert at something and keep knowledge for many, many years? And I was like thinking, what are the considerations of the IDF to not to go for this change? Recently, I spoke to a friend of mine um uh, who is closer to that decision making and 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 she brought up uh, some really good points which i hadn't thought about and so the first thing that's if i'm going to compare it to to most other world armies the first special thing or advantage of the idf is that it's a conscript it's a conscript army it's a mandatory service why is that special because by making military service mandatory you are getting as a country the top 10% of your of your citizens of, of every generation are coming through through the army. You can't get that unless it's mandatory service. The minute you make the the the, the IDF a professional army, those top 10% people are, are most likely not gonna go through the IDF. So what this is saying is hey, we're getting quality people coming through the ranks of the IDF. And that's not the same thing you can say. Um, not that there aren't quality people in the U.S. Army, of course there are in, in the armed forces, but is it the top 10% of the entire United States going through the, U, the U.S. Armed Forces? It is not. Is it the top 10% of the French Army going through the armed forces? No, it's not. So um, this is a big, big deal um, that I, I think often gets overlooked, but this is the number one thing that I think... Uh, is an advantage to the IDF compared to other military forces. And and again, I, I don't like some of the results from it, but I understand it on the big picture. Now, another thing is that uh, when you have this, this force that is mandatory service, by the way, and this connects to some of the issues we discussed earlier, you have diversity in political and character thoughts. So we actually have an army that's more um, humane in that sense, in the sense that people want to talk about on TV, because you might be in a unit with some other people who doesn't agree with you politically. It's it's actually more common on a cons- on a conscript army, a mandatory service army, than it is on a professional army. So that's on that same point, you you have a double advantage with regards to our conversation here today. 
The second point is that, you know, when I was uh, in, 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 in service in, in Israel, I can see directly how what I'm doing is affecting the safety of my loved ones at home. Like I can see directly and in front of my eyes, I can, I can see results live about what I'm doing with regards to the safety of the home front. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it, Where, whereas yeah. in the U.S. Army or many other armies that have to go and fight on the other side of the world, I mean, tell me, if you're doing a patrol in Afghanistan, how hard is it to see the results of what you're doing with regards to, to you know, protecting your country and the people that you, you want to keep safe? It's extremely hard. It's just not the same feeling. Right. Right. So, so that's another advantage of uh, of the Israeli army, and why you you're gonna get also different uh, degrees of motivation and and you know things of the sort. The third thing uh, is that Israelis in general, and the Israeli army in particular, are are by character more flexible and adaptable and casual. Yes, than um, let's say the American army or the German army or even the French army. So what that is allowing you to do is proceed with complex operations in a smaller amount of time. I'm not referring to bureaucracy, but what I'm referring to is that I, I had many missions where it was like, hey, we're going to get this guy. He's wearing this, this and that. Here's a picture. Get in the car as you're driving. Uh, listen to me while I brief you, and five minutes later, we're out, and we need to do something about it. And sometimes these type of operations could take a, um, a unit in the in the U.S. or in, in another uh, European country. It can take, they take them weeks to prepare for. So, uh, you know, that, that casual approach, that uh, flexibility, that, um, you know, it, it's, it's also an advantage of the Israeli army compared to other armies. The when it comes to more like a specific operational advantage of the Israeli armed forces, I think really the only and I'm referring to ground forces, arm armed forces. I'm not gonna talk to you about missiles and and artillery and navy and planes. So when it comes to armed forces, uh, I think the only thing that Israel really does well is the undercover stuff, the Mistal Vim stuff, um, the low visibility undercover units. I think that specialty is, is the only thing that Israel actually does better than other countries. And there's a few reasons for it. Number one reason is that we operate always in the same areas. So it's, it's, a, it's something where you can keep knowledge and maintain that knowledge and, and even expand it to the point where like, hey, uh, in my unit, there were people who knew the the towns, villages, and refugee camps that we operated on um, so well that they could tell you, you you tell them, hey, they're on this street, and they'll tell you, oh, yeah, in the corner, there's a store like this. Or, uh, you know, this street uh, has a trash can like, uh, you know, uh, 10 yards from the corner. Uh, you know, the degree of a specific knowledge that you can have on an area was very, very high. And I don't think... You can say the same um, for other forces that are, you know, maybe so a few years in a, in a, in a city or in a town or in deployment, 
but it's not something you're doing every day. And the next person after you is doing the same place every day. The aerial, so, the, the aerial drones in the U.S. not give that level of specificity. They can give a, a very high degree of specificity, but the way that what you do with it can only come from trial and error through a consistent mm-hmm. period of time, right? So, you know, because a person uh, in this type of units knows the area so well, and he knows how people say a specific word in that city, and they say it differently if you go south or in the north of the West Bank. Like every word, you know, words are said differently. People dress differently. They even drive in certain ways or add certain things to their cars. Um, And, uh, you know, just knowing, for instance, hey, yeah, there's a store here, but I know what the store looks like inside and what they sell here. And I can recognize the face of the owner. That's a degree of of knowledge that you can't get from a drone. Hmm. You can only get from informants but, you know, informants are not always someone you can trust uh, completely. I mean, uh, you know, if we to give you one of the biggest examples is the, the cost uh, suicide bomber um, that happened to the CIA. Um, who ended up being like, a, you know, a, a, a double spy or a triple spy. I don't remember anymore, but it was crazy. So that's one one of the things that helps the Mistaradim, the undercover units work very well. Another thing is um, that uh, we have in the pop- in in we have two two types of uh, Mistaradim. There's one the most common type is uh, Druze or Muslims themselves or Christian Arabs who who become uh, operators in these units. And they obviously have a, a an advantage that is unprecedented when it comes to trying to infiltrate a population. Like you're you're part of it, you speak it well, and you can adapt to it, right? Um, and then the schools that we have developed to have regular Israelis also go through that process are, are very very advanced. So that is one aspect. And the last aspect is the integration between the undercover stuff and the operational. Uh, or combat capabilities has been done very well and has been adapted and and works in synergy very well whereas in in the the previous let's say step to this is to have two different units so have one unit providing that that surveillance that counter surveillance that that infiltration another unit uh, providing the i don't know the breaching or the or the sniper or the or the arrest capabilities so in, in these units, they're integrated together, which is not something that's very, very common in other places of the world. And even if it is, I think it functions very well in the Israeli armed forces. So that is the, 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 the advantage that I think we have. I don't think uh, that the, the combat uh, curriculum has too many specialties other than, um, you know, the Israeli army has always known how to add kind of like a, a fighter spirit thing better than others, but it exists, man. It exists in America. It exists in, in uh, countries in Europe. And, and so I don't think, and, and, you know, from the history that I know, for instance, I, I was an instructor in in the school of the security agency, which is probably one of the highest, uh, it is the highest school of training in Israel. And I'm telling you that, a lot of the curriculum came from 
American expats who went to Israel after World War II. So at the end of the day, there's um, you know there's there's things that are coming back. Gotcha. And tell me a little bit about what you do today uh, with Tactical Fitness Austin. Yeah. Well, um, so what I do today, Tactical Fitness Austin, um, we're a Texas-based company, uh, and up until now, this company has been dedicated to training um, um, private citizens, law-abiding citizens in self-defense. That's firearms. That's defensive tactics, Krav Maga, um, and you know, we have a series of curriculums with regards to uh, concealed carry, uh, family protection, um, you know, and, and uh, really a, a, a quite wide list of a, of self-defense skills that, that you can master and train with us. Um, and then when I came to Tactical Fitness, really my, let's say, my specialty is to try to develop the uh, or expand the the training, the close protection training for private security companies, as well as the law enforcement training. And what I'm trying to do is bring my experience from uh, dignitary protection, from uh, you know covert security and low visibility operations, and integrate that into the executive protection programs of private security companies, um, as well as my experience, my experience in law enforcement in the military, and try to provide um you know effective training for high high risk police tactics uh for law enforcement units here in the US so that's what we're doing here i want to leave folks with some practical advice we have many prospective lone soldiers that listen to the show what advice would you have for lone soldiers who are about to start their service in the IDF or who are thinking about joining the IDF the first advice is hey join for the right reasons so you need something that's bigger than yourself it's not just about you. It's not about you achieving something or uh, you want to be badass or anything. That's fine. That will come along with, with the process. But to get through the hard times and to justify this from a perspective of truth, putting yourself at risk, your life at risk, um, you know, um, risking a, changing your, your family reality for forever needs to come from a perspective that's bigger than yourself. You need to have a bigger reason. You need to understand that reason before you commit to it. The next thing I would say is, you know, and kind of like the lessons that I went through, the most important thing is the people you're with. We spoke about this earlier, but it really doesn't matter so much which unit you're on. What matters is the people that you are with. It's the only thing that's taken me through the hardest times in all of the units that I was in. There were times that were really tough. And I'll tell you, like to have a group of guys that you can, you know, you come to to the unit and you can you can have a laugh together, and you you need something, and everybody's willing to help you. Uh, they stand up to you. They have your back. They they like all of that is is so so valuable. It doesn't matter where you're serving, that is the most valuable thing. And it sounds cliche, but wait, wait until you have a hard time. Wait until you need something, and until you 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 realize how important, just how important that is. The next thing, in, and this is something that I, I remember, it's so funny. I, I saw it written down in a base all the way in the north in Gladiola. You've been there? Yeah, I don't think so. So Gladiola is a, is a base in the Ardov, in, in, Mount, in Bear Mountain. Um, very, very high up north. 
And this is a base where like you can't even breathe, man. Like you're going up the stairs, it's so high, you, you can't breathe, it gets covered in snow, and there's like a series of tunnels because one of the main uh, threats to that base are is artillery fire and anti-tank missiles. Anyway, so I was walking around this base one day and, and suddenly in one of the rooms there's something carved that is stuck with me, and it said first give and then take. So many lone soldiers. And people in general, but like I've seen it because of my involvement with lone soldiers, you know, it's all about taking. So what's in it for me? What am I going to get? Uh, give me this. Send me to this course. Give me this uniform. Give me this weapon. Give me this. Give me that. Give me this. What are you giving? First, give. Like you need to, to come and, and, and justify your place in this unit before you start demanding things. So many lone soldiers don't realize that. They sign up to, to the IDF. They think they're doing the IDF a favor and the Israeli people a favor and the Jewish people a favor. You're not doing a favor. You're, um, you're receiving a privilege. And on top of that, you signed up to do a job. So first give and only after think about taking. So many problems would be fixed if, if people... You know, thought about it this way. Like I, I have so I, I remember in these groups in Facebook, I have to exit because they drive me nuts. Also, like, oh, my officer won't give me this course. He won't give me a jacket. He won't send me on vacation. He won't do this. Like, have you thought and asked yourself what have you done to that unit? Have you helped him achieve his task at least within that team? You know, with regards to his commanders. So first, give and then take. Another thing is we also spoke about this. No one else is, is in charge of your security but yourself. So don't trust no one and always, you know, um, have that responsibility of life and death for yourself and for others. So you have to really take it seriously. That's, that's on your fitness level. That's on your knowledge of a task or a mission. Uh, it's on your um, um, combative skills and, you know, um, everything that you can train and prepare and everything that you can be aware of at all times. Yes. So that is, uh, you know, some of the, the important things. Also, no one is going to worry about you or think about you in regards to your future either. You need to be there to, to kind of like make sure that, 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 you know, you need to carve your career where, wherever it needs to go. So at, at the level of a kid who's going to be there two years, um, you know, maybe the situations where you're going to have to think of this is, is uh, smaller, but when you're thinking about more years, it becomes very important. Yeah. Because oftentimes, and actually, if you're good in a, in a team, you know, they'll want to keep you there forever, but might not be what you have in mind. And right. even though the army is not dedicated to granting you wishes and, and making sure your plan goes according uh, to what you wanted. You know, you can try to carve things towards your benefit, and but that you're the only one who's going to try to do that. Don't expect your commanders to try to do that, or you know, people above them to try to like think of you and award you or uh, send you to things that you want to do. So that has to come from from hard work. Um, and this is something that I I didn't really do well at the beginning, but make a point of getting to know the people you're with, and and being part of the, the group, you need to be a part of that family. You can't be an outsider. You can't be, you know, just do the job and then go to your corner and, and go on your phone and put your, your AirPods on. You have to be a part of that family. You have to laugh with them. You have to 
uh, eat with them, drink with them, sit with them, see them after hours in the weekends, go to the social meetings, go to the things you have to try and you have to be a part of that family uh, to really experience uh, fully what you're about to do and to get the most out of it. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes people try to segment, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm just a soldier, but then I have off on weekends or whatever, but it's impossible. If you're a combat soldier, especially, and even if you're not, you know, it's, it's, you are committing this entire period of your life to the military. And the time you have off is, is really negligible in the big picture. And it's, it's easy when you speak English to kind of not want to try to put in the effort to feel that connection, but you really, it's an essential part of the experience to your point. Everything else is dependent on the tight bonds between you and your teammates. And so it's imperative that you seek to learn Hebrew, that you make those connections, that you put in the time and you try because people notice the effort that you put in and they notice, they'll notice the effort if you don't put it in. Oh, absolutely. Switching gears a little bit. Tactical Fitness has actually formed a partnership with Legion Self-Defense, where I'm honored to serve as president. Our mission is to train Jews to defend themselves, which is typically through the use of Krav Maga, uh, and in some cases in states where it's allowed through firearm tactics. So we will have gyms starting in Q1 of next year, training in Manhattan, in Hartford, Connecticut, in Austin, Texas, and in Brooklyn. So certainly reach out to me if you're in any of those locations you're Jewish and you want to learn to defend yourself at a significantly lower price point than you'd normally pay. But I'm particularly excited about the partnership in Austin because uh, Bernardo is going to be one of the instructors. And as far as I can tell, there are very few people on earth who are as um, equipped to train folks in Krav Maga and firearm tactics as Bernardo. So I'm pretty pumped that uh, Ron and I were able to chat through that with you as a partner and we're really looking forward to, to getting started with you. Yeah, and likewise, um, we're very excited about it. This is, um, we've been doing mostly small groups, Krav Maga here within Tactical Fitness. Um, and this is uh, kind of like going to be a push for us to um, get into doing something that we believe in and also expanding our Krav Maga training uh, in Austin. Um, and I, I, you know, I have a very extensive uh, history with Krav Maga and martial arts. I love, uh, I started doing Thai boxing first, uh, Muay Thai, and then uh, moved more to uh, Krav Maga, MMA. I, I do jujitsu as well and boxing and, um, I love that stuff. So we're also trying to make Krav Maga great again. That's how we, <laughs> that's how we say it. Yeah. I love it. I think that's a great place to end. Bernardo, uh, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for everything you've done for the security of Israel and the United States. Uh, words are not enough to thank you. And uh, it's an honor to call you a friend. So thanks again for, for joining today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate your time and, and what you're doing uh, with this podcast and trying to mentor uh, others and, and, and educate others uh, at the same time. So very, very valuable. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. If people want to reach you, Bernardo, where can they find you? Um, so first of all, you guys can uh, check out Tactical Fitness Austin at tacticalfitnessaustin.com. Um, and then uh, you, I'm, reached, I'm reachable by email at bernardo at tacticalfitnessaustin.com. Or on Instagram, uh, handle is uh, disciplinedpapo. That's it. And I'll put and I'll put all these in the show notes too so folks can can find them. Thanks again for a great discussion. 
Thank you for joining us on the Lone Soldier Podcast. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can check us out at thelonesoldierpodcast.com. If you want to learn more about what it was like to serve as a lone soldier in the IDF, you can pick up a copy of my book, A Line in the Sand, on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble. I want to end this podcast, as I always do, by thanking the brave men and women who serve in the IDF. Thank you for everything you do to keep Israel safe. קצת עלייך להכאיב מעט ללב את המשפט הבא את בטח מכירה יום יומיים אני בא בחזרה נגמר נגמר נגמר